If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn back to Leviticus 16. That will be our text for this morning. And if you have children ages 4 through the 4th grade and you'd like them to attend Children's Church, we have workers ready to receive them. Children ages 4 through the 4th grade, they are welcome as always to stay with us. But if you would like for them to attend Children's Church, they may do so now. The past six months or so have been a time of something of nostalgia when it comes to movies, particularly for my generation, give or take. Mid-December, every boy that I grew up with was giddy with anticipation Looking forward to the release of the newest Star Wars episode. I was right there with him. Saw it twice within the first two weeks that it was out. One of the, one of the things we just, we look forward to was it was a return back to childhood. But before that came October, what date was it? October the 21st. October 21st, 2015. Who remembers what that was? Anybody? That was the day Marty McFly went to the future. In those early or mid-80s, late-80s movies, Back to the Future. Marty McFly, as he went to 2015, as he went to 1955, as he... In the third movie, went all the way back to 1885. Marty McFly was never quite comfortable unless he was in 1985. Because that's what he knew. That's what he was familiar with. That was home. When we enter into the world of Leviticus, when we enter into Leviticus 16... We're tempted to say, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. This is a foreign world to us. It is a foreign world to us because it is some 3,500 years removed from us. It is a foreign world to us because we don't do these things anymore for good reason. It is... A strange world. And so what I want us to do this morning during the first part of the sermon is I'm going to function as something of a tour guide to walk through the Day of Atonement and look at what was going on. I'm not going to read the passage again. We've read through it together, but I do want us to walk through it. And as we walk through it, we're going to see the various things that were going on. We're going to look at the ritual or the rituals of the day. Then after we've walked through all of the rituals of the day, we're going to look at why. What were the reasons for all of these things that needed to be done? We're not going to look exhaustively at all of the reasons. We're going to look at some of the most important reasons 
for why God commanded Israel to do these things on this day. And then finally, we're going to think about what should our response be? So many years removed from these instructions, so many years removed from their actual practice in this way. How should we respond to the rituals and the reasons for which they were practiced? But before we look at the rituals, the reasons and how we should respond, will you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, as we come to you. Father, truly, we need you every hour, as the song says. But in a very real way, we need you in a special way in this hour. We need, Father, your spirit to prepare our hearts, to open our eyes, to open our ears, to hear what you have to teach us in this foreign world this morning. And Father, as we enter into this foreign world, may our response coming out of it be, even this world that we live in now, 2016, this world is not our home. So Father, we pray that from these ancient practices that you gave to your people, that you would teach us and so fulfill what we read earlier from 2 Timothy 3. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the ritual. We have pictures to walk us through the day. The Day of Atonement was the holiest of holy days in the Hebrew calendar. We have here a picture of the tabernacle courtyard as God instructed Moses in Exodus for it to be constructed. The Israelites, as we enter into Leviticus 16, they have left Egypt. They're still at Sinai. They're making their way to the promised land. So this was to be the temporary arrangement. Right? And this tabernacle, this tent of meeting and its courtyard would 400 years or so later then be replaced by a sort of permanent temple in Jerusalem. But this is the tabernacle courtyard that is where the Day of Atonement practices were originally practice. So you have the courtyard, you have inside the courtyard, you have in the front of the tent of meeting. So here is the tent of meeting. You have out in the front of the tent of meeting, the altar of burnt offering and the basin in which sacrifices would have been washed. So in the day of atonement, the high priest, the priest of priests was commanded to wash himself. To wash himself and put on special clothes. The later Jewish commentaries on the Day of Atonement said that it's likely that the high priest washed himself ten times. Including full immersion of entire body underwater five times to clean himself in preparation 
for the day of atonement. Then after washing himself, he would put on the linen clothes, the linen shorts, the linen outer garments, the linen sash, the linen turban. These are important because on the most important day, the most important religious day of the year for Jews, the high priest did not dress up. Normally, he looked like a king. But on this day, he dressed down. At the command of God, as a picture of his humility before the Almighty. After having washed and put on his linen outer clothes, he would then bring a bull for his own sin offering. He would take that bull in the courtyard, he would slit its throat, he would collect its blood. He would take that blood, he would also grab some coals from the altar that is outside of the tent of meeting. He would grab some coals, put them in a censer, grab two handfuls of incense. Then he would enter into the tabernacle. The tabernacle was divided into two spaces. There was the front space, which we typically call the holy place. And then there was the rear space, often called the Holy of Holies. It's what is capitalized as the holy place in the ESV for Leviticus 16. The priest having the blood of this bull for his sin or his purification offering, along with these coals and this incense, would enter into, would pass through the front and enter in behind the veil would put the incense on those coals in order to create something of a smoke screen. And then he would take the blood of the bulls, of that bull, he would sprinkle it once on top of the mercy seat or the atonement cover, the lid for the Ark of the Covenant. Then he would sprinkle that blood seven times in front of the mercy seat. The priest would then exit the tabernacle, come back out into the courtyard where he would receive two goats. He would cast lots over these goats. There's some uncertainty of exactly how this happened, but in some way he would cast probably two items that would come up under the plan and according to the direction of the Lord, assigning one of those goats to be the goat of the people's sin offering, and the other goat, the ESV says for Azazel, the basic idea there is that it's a goat for sending away, or what we often call the scapegoat. So he would come out And by lot, select the goat for the sin offering and the goats that would be sent away. Then he would take the goat whose lot fell for the Lord, the goat that would be the sacrificial sin offering, slit its throat, collect the blood, go back into the sanctuary, back into the tabernacle, and he would do the exact same thing in the Holy of Holies with The blood of that goat. Having put the blood of the bull 
and the blood of the goat in the Holy of Holies as instructed by the Lord, he would then exit back out into the holy place and he would apply the blood to this area. Leviticus 16 doesn't tell us exactly what he would do, but if we go back to Leviticus 4 where the instructions are given for the blood for these types of sin offerings, we see that most likely what the priest would have done now, he would have taken the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat. He would have sprinkled some on the veil and then he would have sprinkled or put applied some to the horns of the altar of incense inside the holy place. Then he would exit out of the tabernacle. He would take the blood And he would apply the blood to the altar of burnt offering. Again, the altar of the bull that was for him, the blood of the bull that was for him, and the blood of the goat that was for the people. Then he would take that second goat, that scapegoat that had been so designated by Lot. He would put both hands on the head of that goat and he would confess over it the sins of the people as well as his own sins. This is significant because typically when hands were placed on a sacrificial animal, only the Israelites were instructed that they only needed to put one hand. But on this day, the high priest is told, put both of your hands on the head of that goat and confess over it the sins of the people. He likely would have prayed something like this as he stands over that goat. O God, thy people, the house of Israel, have committed iniquity, transgressed and sinned before thee. O God, forgive, I pray, the iniquities and transgressions and sins which thy people, the house of Israel, have committed and transgressed and sinned before thee. As it is written in the law of thy servant Moses... For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you from all your sins. Shall ye be clean before the Lord. Then the high priest, after having thus prayed, would take that goat and send it out to a man who was ready to take it away. A man who stood in readiness to take that goat away from the camp out into the wilderness so that it would never return. Now remember, earlier I said that what we have going on here is the practice in the wilderness before the people get into the promised land. Once the temple was set up and this institution was practiced with a permanent temple, it became the practice to take that goat and not just send it out into the wilderness, but this man who took it out would take it out and shove it backwards over a cliff to guarantee that that goat never returned back into the community of the people. The high priest would then go into the tabernacle and he would wash himself again and he would put on his normal priestly, kingly looking garments. He would come out of the tabernacle and he would 
then offer the two burnt offerings that had been commanded by the Lord. One ram for himself and his household, one ram for the community of Israel. This burnt offering would have included offering the entire animal. Nothing of it would have been kept. It would have been offered on the altar along with the fat or the choicest portions of that bull and that ram that had been, or that bull and that goat that had been sacrificed. After the burnt offering or the burnt offerings had been offered, then that man who took the goat out of the community, he would bathe and Having thus bathed himself, he would come back into the community. Then another individual from the community would collect the carcass, the flesh, the dung of that bull and that goat that had been offered as a sin offering. Take it outside the community, outside the camp and burn it. After burning it, he would wash himself. And being clean would come into the camp. The people were commanded that while all of this was going on, it was to be a day of particular rest for them. And more than just a day of rest, it was to be a day of affliction. A day on which they prayed. A day on which they fasted. A day on which they abstained from many pleasures in the world. Some say a day on which they would go around barefoot, not even taking the comfort of shoes. And this was to be a practice that they were to observe every year on the 10th month, on the 10th day of the seventh month. For us, that typically occurs around the end of September, early October. It's in the fall. Yom Kippur, that is the day. And it remains one of the most holy days in the Jewish calendar. We look at that and we say, that sounds perhaps to you and to many in the 21st century, barbaric, savage, I'm the only one who can say that. Confusing. Unnecessary. Extreme. Gross. Dirty. Something to be avoided. But as we read Leviticus 16, and we read Leviticus 16 in light of the entire Bible... We see that there are reasons why not just this was done. There were reasons why this had to be done. The clearest reason why these things had to be done was that the Lord commanded for them to be done. But why did the Lord command Aaron, Moses, the Israel to do these things? Plain and simple, it was to make atonement to make restoration, to make purification. Sixteen times in this chapter, the phrase in one form or another, make atonement, is given. That is why these things had to be done, to make atonement. To make atonement for what? There were 
two categories of atonement that needed to be made, we read in Leviticus 16. Atonement needed to be made for the holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar. Leviticus 16, verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Why is it that the altar, that the tabernacle, that the place of meeting needed to be purified, have atonement made for it. We're told in verse 16 and in verse 21 that there are four categories for why atonement needed to be made. Atonement needed to be made, first of all, for the because of the uncleanness of the people. If you go back and you read Leviticus 11 through 15, there are lots of laws about being clean and unclean and those things that made one unclean and those things that were unclean. And that, not to mention these practices, but just that language of clean and unclean is foreign to us. It's not a matter of hygiene. It was something different. To think, to understand the Levitical categories of clean and unclean, think of a circle. And in that circle is what we might call normalness. Just the way things are and the way things should be. Inside that circle is clean. And everything outside of that circle, abnormal, is unclean. Some things that made one unclean were overt sin. Murder, adultery, and so forth. Those transferred a person from the category of clean, from the sphere of clean, out to unclean. But then there were other things that were not sinful, that were just a part of interacting with life in a fallen world, that sent one outside of the clean sphere. Childbirth would do this for a woman. There is everything good and right about childbirth. But because of the blood that was involved in that process, it sent that woman into the unclean category. She could be cleansed and brought back into the realm of the clean by going through certain practices. There were animals that were just, they were always unclean. They were, the Hebrews were not to touch them. They were not to eat them. They were always unclean. But there was this constant movement back and forth from clean to unclean and These purification offerings, these sin offerings had to be offered in order to bring one from unclean back into a state of normalcy, back into a state of cleanliness before the Lord. But it's not just because of this uncleanness that the tabernacle needed to be purified. We also read in verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. Three words for sin that are used here. 
few weeks ago, Pastor Steve preached from Psalm 32 on Sunday evening. These same three words for sin appear there. They also appear in Psalm 51. And when we put them together, what we have is sort of a comprehensive picture of what sin is. That word transgressions means a going away or a departure. It pictures rebellion against God. That word sins means a coming short or a falling short, missing the mark, not living up to God's standards. Iniquities speak of being corrupted, twisted, crooked. James Boyce speaks of these three words in this way. The first describes, that is, transgressions, describes sin in view of our relationship to God. It pictures us as being in rebellion against God. The second word describes sin in relation to the divine law. We fall short of it and are condemned by it. The third word describes sin in relation to ourselves. It is a corruption or twisting of right standards, as well as a corruption or twisting of our own beings. Because of Israel's uncleanness, which was not necessarily a moral thing, but also because of all of the sins that they committed. Rebellion against God. Distortion of relationships. Their uncleanness, their sin, polluted the place where God was to dwell in their midst. And so, purification for the defilement that came because of their sin and their uncleanness needed to be made. And it needed to be made by the application of the blood of the bull, the blood of the goat, and then pictured in the sending away of the scapegoat. So these instruments were purified as the blood was applied to them. And then the scapegoat pictured what had happened. The sin was being removed. The pollution was being taken away from the people. Taken away from the place that God had set aside to dwell in the midst of his people. But it wasn't just that purification needed to be made because not only were these sin offerings made, but also those burnt offerings. The burnt offerings symbolized a payment being made for sin. Purification from the pollution of sin was made in the sin offering. With the rams of the burnt offering, payment was made for their sin. This is a picture of redemption, of Forgiveness being achieved. In sin, we have both pollution and we have guilt. Sin defiles and it causes one to be guilty before God. In the sin offerings, we have an accomplishment of purification. In the burnt offerings, we have an accomplishment of the removal of guilt. Wholeness, restoration being achieved. So, these offerings had to be applied to make atonement. To make atonement for the altar, to make atonement for the tabernacle, to make atonement for the people. But why? Why did atonement need to be made? Atonement needed to be made so that God could dwell 
with his people. This was the whole point. The point was not just purification. The whole point was not just forgiveness. The whole point was purification and forgiveness so that God might dwell in the midst of his people. This was his great gift to them. The great gift to them was not go through all of these practices. His great gift to them was, I will dwell with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. Moses, remember he goes to that burning bush and he's outside of Egypt. He hasn't been there for eight, for 40 years. And there is God's presence in the bush. And God tells Moses, you'll come back and worship me here. And they come back and God descends on Sinai. With peals of thunder and earthquake, his presence before them. And now he gives Moses the instructions for this tabernacle so that his particular presence might not stay there at Sinai, but might go with them into the promised land. Because Moses knows if God goes with us, then victory is certain. But if God doesn't go with us, if he stays here, then it's pointless. Let's just throw it all away. And so God gives Moses the gift of the Day of Atonement to cleanse the tabernacle, to cleanse the people, so that he might dwell with them, so that he might go with them, so that his particular presence would be with them. The aim of these rituals is to make possible God's continued presence among his people. Without a purpose such as this, there would have been little point in the high priest putting his life at risk by entering the Holy of Holies. Aaron's two sons were killed by the fire of God because they offered unauthorized fire before the presence of God. That was a picture of what not to do. Do not go before the Lord ever except the high priest on this one day for this one reason and only in this way because the Lord is a consuming fire. God gave Israel the gift of the day of atonement so that he might be with them. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it's also a gift for them and for us because it's a yearly reminder of sin. The Israelites had pictured before them year after year after year after year just how sinful they were in the shedding of this blood, in the offering of these animals, in the sending away of that goat. Those practices screamed the words, you are sinners. And you must be made clean if a righteous and holy God will dwell among you and if you will be his people before him. Finally, these institutions were given so that they might be fulfilled by Christ. These institutions were not an end in and of themselves. Sometimes we think, I think, When Adam and Eve sinned, when they rebelled against God, why didn't God just send Christ right then and get it over with? Why all of these rituals and all of these practices? 
Because in the Day of Atonement, in all of the sacrifices, in all of the failure to live up to God's standards, God was picturing for the Israelites and for us just how sinful we are, just how separated from Him we are, and to what degree we need to be brought back to Him, to what degree we need to be cleansed. And so this brings us to how should we respond to these foreign, odd practices. There are lots of applications that we could make. Some of those we're going to look at this evening. And so I encourage you, if you're not in a community group or don't have other responsibilities, come back with us. And let's think about how else should we respond to the Day of Atonement beyond this. The Day of Atonement reveals to us, in a unique way, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came, he said, to fulfill all that was commanded in the law of the prophets. And one of the things that was commanded was the Day of Atonement. And this is, I think, the chief application that must be made from These practices, beholding, rejoicing in, and in our hearts, falling on our faces before the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. How is the glory of Christ shown in the Day of Atonement? The glory of Christ is not shown in the fact that we can say, man, I'm glad we don't have to go through all that. That sure looks like a big old headache. Thanks, Lord, for making it possible so we wouldn't have to go through that. I I get that, and there's a part of that. But if that's where we stop, we miss the whole point. Because what we need to see in this practice and in all of the sacrifices that were given day after day, year after year, what we need to see is the depth And the breadth of our sin and the problem of our sin before a holy God. The question of the Bible is, how can a holy God dwell among a sinful people? Here, in the Day of Atonement, this was one way. Temporary, year after year. But in Christ, once for all. The the priest himself, he needed the sacrifices. He needed the sacrifice of the bull for his own sin. He needed the sacrifice of the ram for his own sin. Christ needed no sacrifice for himself. The priest performs his functions in a tabernacle constructed by hands. The writer of the Hebrew tells us that Christ fulfilled his priestly work for us, not in a tent made by hands, not in a temporary dwelling, but in an eternal dwelling, in the eternal presence of God. Christ presented himself as our sin offering, as our burnt offering, but not only as our offering, but as our priest presenting himself before the Holy Father, having taken upon himself our sin, having died for us and thus made purification, thus accomplished our forgiveness. 
not an animal, but a man. Not a sinful man, but the sinless God-man. The high priests could go into the Holy of Holies, but one time a year. And just for this purpose. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that when Christ presented himself as our atoning sacrifice, he didn't go in to present himself only to quickly leave. He went in to present himself as our gift before the Father. And then what did he do? He sat down in the presence of the Father. The work being accomplished. He went inside the heavenly veil, not temporarily, but permanently. This is why Matthew, the other gospel writers say that when Jesus breathed his last and gave up a cry, what happened? That veil was torn. Because access, permanent access, not just temporary, not just for a minute access, but for all time access had been accomplished by the Son. But finally, we see the perfection and the glory of Christ in this. Year after year after year after year after year. These sacrifices were offered. Blood spilled all over the place. And this is to say nothing of the daily burnt offerings. This is to say nothing of the annual Passover lambs that were sacrificed by the people. All of those sacrifices. And yet, what does the perpetual giving of these sacrifices say? It's not enough. That's not enough. You can never do enough. You can never offer enough. You can never be good enough. You cannot give enough to make yourself acceptable to stand in the presence of a holy God. And then there's Christ. Who gave himself. Not year After year, after year. But one time. And not just one time for the community of Israel. But one time Christ gives himself so that all, from all time, who might come to him by faith would enjoy uninhibited access to the presence of a holy and righteous God. One time Christ had to give himself to accomplish this atonement that could never be fully accomplished by all of this blood By all of this death, by all of this work, by all of this effort, year after year after year. Here we see our need for Christ. Here we see the absolute necessity that Christ gave himself for us. The first Good Friday was the definitive day of atonement. When man's sins were purged once and for all. So my appeal to you 
is to behold the glory of our great high priest and our great sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, who on that Good Friday gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, shedding his blood, giving up his spirit so that we might have access to the Father. If your hope is not in Christ this morning, then see in all of this blood and all of this gore the depth of your need for rescue from your sin. And see the gift of life that is offered to you in the gift of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn away from your rebellion. Turn away from your transgressions. Turn away from your distortion of heart. And flee to Christ. If you are in Christ this morning. Your hope is in Him. Behold. The Savior. Who has given Himself. For you. So that you might have perpetual access to the Father. What I'm about to say is not necessary. But in reflecting on the Day of Atonement, I want to encourage you in this way. The Day of Atonement was commanded for the Israelites to be a day of affliction. A day of remembering their sin. A day of fasting. A day of praying. Good Friday is the day of atonement for us. That is the day on which our atonement was accomplished. And this coming Friday, we remember that it was on that Good Friday that the Lord Jesus gave himself for us. Take some time to step away. From the pleasures of life. Perhaps fast. Take some time to pray. Take some time to read Leviticus 16. To read Hebrews 9 and 10. To glory in this one truth. The Lord Jesus Christ has given himself as a once for all, sacrifice for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to remember the fact that our Savior did bleed for us in the song that we will sing Father, I pray that our reflection on these great truths would not cease when we turn our eyes away from the screens or close our hymnals. But Father, I pray that even this afternoon, this week, this Friday, and even every day, Father, I pray that we would behold in Christ the perfect sacrifice for us, your great love and mercy, rescuing us from our distortion, rescuing us from our deadness, rescuing us from our rebellion, so that we might enjoy your gracious presence forever. 
Father, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit to all of those who are in Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-consuming power is yours, is from you and not from us. Father, thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. I pray, Father, that we would not only be deeply and truly thankful, but I pray, Father, that we would be ambassadors of Christ, ministers of reconciliation, speaking this word of hope, of forgiveness, of sacrifice to those who do not yet know Christ by faith. In His name we pray. Amen.